This is an ABC podcast. Last year marked the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. For decades, it divided communist East Germany from the capitalist democracy in Germany's West. Australia and East Germany were on opposite sides of the Cold War, a conflict that divided the world into two ideological camps. Communist countries were deep enemies and deep opponents of ours. But for some Australians, East Germany wasn't the enemy. It was a country they believed in. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley, and this is The History Listen. Today, we trace the chequered history of our relationship with East Germany through the personal stories of Australians who were drawn there. Georgia Moody has the story. I'm walking down the street in the Berlin inner city suburb of Mitter, and I've just pulled up at the building where Salome lives. I've come to see Salome Ginin because she experienced life on both sides of the Iron Curtain, in Australia and in East Germany. In fact, Salome's whole life has been shaped by 20th century German history. Is that how you walk through the street? Always, always recorder in hand. Really? <laughs> how are you? I'm fine. Come in. Thank you. And how are you? I'm very well. Oh, good. Her apartment is decorated with Indigenous art and fridge magnets from Melbourne. Can I make you a cup of tea? I'd love a cup of tea. Well, then, come into the kitchen. Uh, Salome is 87. She was born here in Berlin, not far from where she lives today. I was born on the 31st of August, 1932, in the Jewish hospital in Berlin. One of her earliest memories is being picked on by neighbourhood kids for being Jewish. The rise of Nazism pushed her family to flee. In 1939, they sailed for Australia. We arrived in Melbourne, and on Monday, my mother took me to the nearest school, which was St Kilda State School in Fitzroy Street. A few years later, when she was 12, a friend invited Salomea to a meeting. It was the Eureka Youth League, the youth wing of the Communist Party. The General Secretary of the Eureka Youth League held a lecture about socialism. She described socialism in glowing colours and that this was already reality in the Soviet Union and capitalism is the cause of war. And we see in Germany they have made the Jews scapegoats and that, that hooked me, of course. She joined up that night. It was 1944, and the whole world seemed to be fighting against fascism. To Salomea, it was clear that communism was on the right side of history. She'd always felt like an outsider, at home and at school. But the Communist Party welcomed her with open arms. I was very unhappy in my family. I didn't have a father. My mother took no notice of me. I always had to shut up at home. 
and the Communist Party became my substitute family. For me, the most important thing in the world was communist ideology and activities for socialism. And it is true, I was fanatical. While Salomea threw herself into the communist cause in Melbourne, big shifts were taking place internationally. World War II ended, and soon after, the Cold War began, dividing the world into the communist East and the capitalist West. There was a a very um, extraordinary climate of fear and trepidation and confrontation between the all supposedly all-powerful Soviet Union and its allies and the all-powerful United States and its allies, one of which was Australia. This is David Ritchie, an Australian diplomat who spent many years working in Germany. After the war, Germany itself was divided into two separate countries along Cold War lines. A capitalist democracy in West Germany and a communist state in the East. Here's Peter Monteith, Professor of History at Flinders University. The zones in the West became the Federal Republic of Germany or West Germany in May of 1949. To come members of the first freely elected German parliament in 16 years. The Allied High Commissioners, including America's McCloy, are present as a new German Republic, a federation of the 11 Western provinces, is born. And a few months later, in October, what had been the Soviet zone of occupation was proclaimed as an independent state, the German Democratic Republic. Berlin's Communist Congress transforms itself into a parliament and chooses Berlie Wilhelm Peck, Germany's communist number one, as president of the new East German state. That night, Berlin echoes again to the rhythm of the jackboots. There emerge these two different German states, each of which understood itself to be quite the opposite of the other. They were two antagonistic countries at the forefront of the Cold War, facing off against each other. Even though Berlin was in the east, surrounded on all sides by East Germany, it was divided into east and west, just like the rest of the country. Berlin was carved up into four zones as well. A French zone, a British zone, American zone, and a Soviet zone. East Berlin is the Soviet zone, and the three Western zones became West Berlin. From the beginning, Australia was an ally of West Germany, and West Germany threatened to cut ties with any country that formally recognised East Germany, also known as the GDR. It really wasn't uh, an option for Australia to recognise the GDR. It wasn't seen as a legitimate state. It was seen officially as German territory held under Soviet occupation. But that did not stop Australians like Salomea from visiting East Germany. When it became known that the Third World Festival of Youth and Students for Peace and Against Imperialism was going to be held in East Berlin, I knew I want to go there. Salomea joined the Australian delegation, travelling by boat to the Soviet-backed festival. Unbeknownst to those on board, an agent from ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, was in their midst. And this is your ASIO file? Yes. 
I do love this report here. Berlin Youth Festival, August 1951. A very keen member of the Eureka Youth League and a rabid supporter of the peace movement. She is very bitter and blames all the evils of the world on capitalism. She is described as bad and unscrupulous and is very conscious of her Jewish origin. I laughed my head off when I saw that. Part of it is absolutely true. I was not bitter, but I certainly blamed all the evils of the world on capitalism. But that I am bad and unscrupulous, really. <laughs> the ASIO agent was also keeping a close eye on Faith Bandler, an Indigenous rights activist. She died in 2015, but left behind several oral history interviews. Faith was invited to come along to the East Berlin Festival by a choreographer. She said, well, I've created this dance. It has to do with racial discrimination and perhaps you'd take the part of the Aboriginal child, but you'll have to come to Berlin with us. Faith joined the delegation, even though she wasn't exactly a staunch communist. The delegation consisted of artists, singers, dancers, trade unionists and also communist party members. But it seemed to me all along that they were controlling things. Well, who should care? I was going on a brand new Italian boat from Sydney to Naples. Who'd care who led the bloody thing? <laughs> Least of my worries. After landing in Italy, they travelled by train to East Berlin. Initially, you could move around Berlin. The Berlin Wall wasn't built until the 1960s. Faith was shocked to find the city still in ruins from World War II. For miles and miles, you could see no building, only rubble. What buildings one saw were mainly those that were erected as theatres for the festival. For a fortnight we were performing every night and uh, the Soviet Union had sent over some of their army colonels and majors just to enjoy the festival and no doubt to keep an eye on the festival. But. After that particular performance was over, backstage came these army colonels (laughs) to say thank you. Arms full of flowers, flowers everywhere in this debris. But not even all those flowers could make East Germany appealing to faith. The iron heel of communism was quite prevalent there in East Berlin. They had us all under control, unbeknown to us. One of her friends was detained for six hours by the East German police on suspicions he was a Western spy. That made me feel very uncomfortable. And the thing that disturbed me most of all was that the communists in the delegation could see no wrong in anything that was done by our hosts. Nothing. Unlike Faith, 
Salameya had no reservations about communist rule in the GDR. After returning to Melbourne, she dreamed of going back. My longing for the GDR grew with every passing month. In East Germany, she thought, she'd no longer be defined by her background. I wanted to stop being Jewish. Anti-Semitism, I was convinced, had been overcome in the GDR because they were an anti-fascist state. She kept applying to move there, but East Germany rejected her applications. So instead, she did the next best thing. In 1954, I left Melbourne. I settled down in West Berlin and crossed the border all the time. Salomea wasn't the only Australian crossing into East Berlin. Looking through her ASIO files, we find a whole list of them. These Australian citizens who lived in the GDR. I didn't know him or her. Oh yeah, Kaufman, yes, of course, I knew her. Oh, and Fred Rose, yes. Salomea didn't know Fred Rose very well, and he died in 1991. So I'm catching a train to meet his daughter, because the story of Fred and his family perfectly illuminates the Cold War climate of fear in both Australia and East Germany. Well, my name is Ruth Strover. My maiden name is Rose, so I'm the daughter of Frederick Rose. Fred was probably regarded as the expert in the GDR on Australia because, of course, he knew Australia intimately. He was not Australian-born, but he'd spent many years there. He was an expert on Indigenous Australia. Historian Peter Monteith has researched Fred Rose and his connection to both Australia and East Germany. Fred was born in London. In the 1930s, he studied anthropology at Cambridge. After he graduated, he went to Australia, tried to have contacts with anthropologists that failed, so he picked up a job as a meteorologist in northern Australia and studied there the indigenous people on Crude Island. He did field work there among the Anandulyakwa people on Crude Island. Fred was struck by the disadvantage he saw in Indigenous communities across Australia. It was, I think, a crucial part of his political development. It's part of the reason why he turned to the Communist Party of Australia. He joined the Communist Party in '42, and my mother the year later. So they were members of the Communist Party of Australia. A few years later, Fred and his family moved to Canberra where Fred worked as a public servant. Then, the Petrov affair made headlines across Australia, creating widespread fear of Soviet espionage. Vladimir Petrov, the third secretary of the Russian embassy in Canberra, defected to Australia on April the 3rd, 1954. The defections of Soviet embassy officials Vladimir Petrov and his wife sparked off a royal commission into Soviet espionage in Australia, just as the Cold War was becoming more than chilly. And Fred was called up as a witness. I was a communist. I was employed in the public service. He spoke to the ABC about it in 1983. I was arraigned before the Petrov Commission on Espionage in 1954 
In fact, for at least four years beforehand, I was being investigated systematically by ASIO. There were accusations that he, as a public servant, had been involved in passing on secrets to the Soviet embassy. He denied all of the accusations levelled at him. They couldn't prove anything against him, but this was all very murky. Then, of course, I had no future in my chosen field of study, anthropology. And I also had the opportunity of working in the German Democratic Republic in the Humboldt University. And, of course, I took it. He was able to move to East Berlin. That path had been opened to him in good part through his wife, Edith, because Edith was German. He'd met her in England before the war. She returned to Europe, in fact, before Fred did. Fred's wife, Edith, had moved with their daughters to Berlin in 1953. But she was facing her own battles. Because Edith had spent more than a decade living in the West, in Australia, she wasn't welcome in East Germany. People coming from the West, they were suspicious of. Our mother had to, was forced out of the GDR. She was told to leave within a fortnight and had to live illegally in, in West Berlin. And so we three children were staying with our grandfather. That was pretty hard. For two and a half years, Edith lived in West Berlin while her children were in the East. Because there was still no Berlin Wall, Edith could see her children, but only occasionally. My grandfather had an office in East Berlin, and that's where we sometimes met. But it wasn't supposed to be known that she was there and we were her children. So while Fred was fighting charges of being a communist spy in Australia, his wife Edith was forced out of communist East Germany for being too closely linked to the West. So the political circumstances of the time divided the family and made life extremely difficult for them. So they didn't become more settled in the East until the mid-1950s, when all of the family finally was uh, united in the GDR. Meanwhile, millions of East Germans were coming to Berlin to move in the opposite direction, into West Germany. But then... In August 1961, the Berlin Wall appeared overnight. It happened without warning in the early hours of August the 13th. Berliners woke up to find their city split. East German soldiers sealed off the line dividing the eastern sector of Berlin from the American, French and British zones in the west. And it took the west completely by surprise. The East Germans, they used to call it the anti-fascist protection wall. It was to protect their people against the fascists that lived in West Germany and the West, when in fact it was meant to keep their people in because huge numbers of people were bleeding away to the West. East Germans couldn't travel anywhere. That's the whole point of the wall. Families were torn apart. Relatives were could not see each other. All along the borders, you saw people standing there who had relatives in the east part, waving at them, shaking hands, crying, holding their babies up to the grandmother. So I even saw a young married couple. But the Berlin Wall was not an obstacle for Fred and Edith Rose. 
The advantage that both Edith and Fred had was that they still had British passports. So they were among the few people living in the East who could go over to the West. And this made them of interest to the East German secret police, the, the Stasi. The Stasi was one of the world's most effective and repressive intelligence agencies. It relied on a vast network of informants spying on their friends, colleagues and family. Fred and Edith joined their ranks. Both of them were willing collaborators with the Stasi. As good communists, they saw that as part of their duty. And as Westerners who might otherwise uh, might themselves have been the subject of some suspicion, they saw this, I think, as a way of proving their bona fides as East German citizens. Salomea was approached by the Stasi that very same year. In 1961, she was still living in West Berlin, desperate to move east. Working for the Stasi was her ticket in. I was persuaded to tell them what I was experiencing in West Berlin. They said to me, we need to know moods, we need to know what people think, because we are in danger. The West wants to roll back socialism. So I had no qualms, whatever, telling them about everything and everyone that crossed my path. After working for the Stasi for more than a year, Salomea was finally allowed to move to East Germany. They allotted me a flat. I found myself a job and I started my new life. At first, the feeling I had was home at last. I mean, I had been fighting for nine years to get in. That every now and then I couldn't get the onions that I wanted. I couldn't get the liver sausage I wanted. I mean, there were continual shortages of something or another all the time. And so I now experienced these things and thought, aha, well, okay, these are the infantile disorders of socialism. And it will, of course, improve with time. Throughout the 1960s, Australia refused to recognise the country Salomea called home. But then, in December 1972... Gough Whitlam led the Labor Party to victory. Mr Whitlam is uh, now going out into the garden to join the hundreds of supporters who are just clamouring to congratulate him. Less than three weeks later, East and West Germany signed a treaty, recognising each other as sovereign states for the first time. The two Germanys decided to normalise their relationship with the benign approval of the United States, France and Britain, and therefore of countries like Australia. The very next day, Gough Whitlam recognised East Germany, making Australia one of the first Western countries to recognise the GDR. That's right. He wasn't going to wait till uh, the British decided to do that. He wasn't going to wait until the Americans uh, shifted their policies. Uh, He was prepared to follow a, a much more independent line in Australia's foreign policy. The following year, Hans Richter, the first East German ambassador to Australia, arrived on our shores. 
Mr Richter, were you surprised at the very quick recognition granted to your government by the new Australian government? No, we are not surprised because we are expecting this recognition all over the world of our country at that time. Were you disappointed that recognition came only now under a Labor government? We are a little bit disappointed that we have to fight for recognition more than 20 years, but last not least we have the recognition and that's the main problem. In 1975, a brand new Australian embassy opened in East Berlin. Fred Rose became a frequent visitor and would report back to the Stasi. He would claim that he uh, had an interest in consulting books which were held in the embassy library and he would draw outlines of the layout of the embassy and pass those outlines on to his handlers so that they would be well informed about what the layout of the embassy was. In 1976, Fred also told the Stasi about a visit from the politician who made the embassy possible, Gough Whitlam. Gough by that time was leader of the opposition and on this occasion a party is put together of um, embassy officials and visiting Australians and it's decided that to add to the company being made available to the visiting Whitlams, Fred and Edith Rose should join them. Uh, and so this extended party on this particular evening headed off to the State Opera House on the main street of East Berlin and had a very convivial evening. That same year, Salomea also made a visit to the Australian Embassy. In 1976, she began having misgivings about communist rule in East Germany. I am seeing a whole lot of things that I don't know how to interpret because I was not willing to give up my rose-coloured view of socialism. She wanted to talk her concerns over with some old friends in Australia. So... After 22 years away, she asked the East German authorities if she and her sons could visit Australia. I was allowed to go, but my children couldn't go. After fighting for years to get in, Salomea was realising how hard it was to leave East Germany. She went to the Australian embassy hoping they might renew her expired Australian passport. But the diplomat she spoke to was not sympathetic. I could see from his face that he was one of these angry anti-communists. And I knew that this is not going to work out well. He says to me, we don't accept double citizenship, therefore, I can't extend your Australian passport. He then took my Australian passport, cut the corners off and gave it back to me. And I thought to myself, you bastard. I asked him, well, if I went to the immigration department in Melbourne, would I get my passport extended there? And his answer was, it is always possible to apply for political asylum. But of course, I wasn't willing to do that at that time. I mean, I had not yet become an ex-communist. Not yet. (laughs) 
That was the first part in our series about the relationship between Australia and East Germany. Next time, Salome's misgivings about East Germany transform into complete disillusionment. I realised I was living in a police state. And what's more, I'd helped to make it so because I had cooperated with the Stasi. And an Indigenous rock band tours the country as protests which led to the fall of the Berlin Wall are brewing. This story was produced by Georgia Moody and the sound engineer was Matthew Crawford. Thanks to the State Library of New South Wales for the oral history of Faith Bandler, speaking with Carolyn Craig. I'm Rebecca Huntley and this is The History Listen. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.